The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, good morning. Let's just take a moment right now and go to the Lord once again in prayer. Father in heaven, you are a faithful God. We're so thankful that we have a God that we can trust. Oh, how sweet it is to trust in you, Lord Jesus. Lord, your word is true. All of your promises are true and trustworthy. And so, Lord, as we look into your word this morning, would you strengthen our faith? We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. And as we see what you have revealed to us in your word, we ask that we might see you most of all, Lord God, that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would show us your heart, that we might know you more deeply as the God that you truly are. Father, thank you for how you have met us already this morning. Thank you for how you have fed our hungry hearts, and we pray that you would continue to do so this morning. And so, Jesus, would you feed your sheep now through your word? And Lord Jesus, would you even work in the lives of lost sheep and bring them back to yourself this morning. And so may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable now in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. The life of a Christian is a life of faith. When trials come, they put our faith to the test. Do I believe that God is being good to me right now? Do I believe that God cares for me, that he's with me? Do I believe that he knows what he's doing? When the future seems uncertain and we don't know what tomorrow will bring, our faith is being tested. Do I trust God to lead me one day at a time, one step at a time, even when I can't see the way forward? When we're counting on God to answer our prayers and to fulfill his promises, our faith is being tested while we wait. Is God really going to come through? It's, it's your taking a while. Can I really trust him? Can I keep waiting on him? In Psalm 130, the psalmist writes, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Think about a watchman who's stationed at the top of a tower and he's keeping awake, uh, awake all night long to see if an enemy army is going to attack. What do you think is going on in his heart and in his mind as he's waiting for morning to come? Well, for one thing, he's eager for morning to come. <laughs> he's eager for the danger of night to be passed. He's looking forward to the security that's going to come with the sunrise. And he's also waiting with expectation. He knows that the morning is going to come. He knows that the sun is eventually going to break over the horizon. He's not wondering if he's just going to stand there in darkness for the next 24 hours. He is certain that morning will come at its appointed time. As we face all of the different things that test our faith, we're called to put our hope in God's word and to wait for the Lord like a watchman waiting for the morning. And that means that we wait eagerly for the Lord, depending on him, just crying out, Lord, I, I need you. I need you to come through for me. I need your help, God. And it also means that we can wait with expectation. We can wait with a certain hope that God is going to keep his promises. It is just as sure as the sun coming up tomorrow. 
(laughs) In fact, it's more likely that the sun would fall out of the sky than that God would break his promises. As we look into Genesis 16 this morning, we're going to see that Abram's faith was tested. This passage is going to challenge us by showing us that when we do not trust God, we're on the path to disobedience. But it's also going to encourage us. It's going to encourage us by showing us that our God is worthy of our trust. His word is true, and his heart is full of tender mercy. And when we see God's character, as it's revealed in this passage of Scripture, we have every reason to trust in our God. So Genesis 16 is a story with, really with three scenes, if you can think of it that way. The first scene takes place at the home of Abram and Sarai, and by the end of that first scene, there is a huge problem. (laughs) The second scene takes place in the wilderness, and God is going to intervene there, and he's going to put his character on display. And then the third scene is back at the home of Abram and Sarai, and there the story is going to find its resolution. And there the word of God is going to call each one of us to walk by faith. And so I want to set the stage for Genesis 16 by remembering what happened in Genesis 15. At the beginning of chapter 15, God promised Abram that his very own son would be his heir and that his offspring would be as innumerable as the stars in the sky. And in the rest of the chapter, God made a covenant with Abram and he promised to give the entire land of Canaan to Abram's offspring. Now, chapter 16 begins by telling us, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had no children. She had borne him no children. That raises the question, of course, how is God going to keep his promises to Abram? How will a man with no children come to have innumerable descendants? At this point in time, Abram is 85 years old, and Sarai is 75. And so, it really seems impossible for them to have a son together. And so Abram and Sarai have a choice to make at this point. Are we, going to keep, are we going to trust God to keep his promises? Are we going to trust him to do the impossible and to give us a son together? Are we going to wait upon the Lord in faith? Or do we need to help God out? <laughs> Maybe God promised just a little bit more than he can deliver. Maybe God needs us to really just help him out a little bit with his plan. And so they're facing a test of their faith right here, aren't they? That's the issue in this text. Do we believe God even when his promises seem too good to be true? Do we believe that God will keep his word even when it seems impossible? Unfortunately, Abram and Sarai decided that they needed to help God out. And so in the rest of verse 1, going through verse 4, it says that Sarai had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Now, in the ancient world, when wealthy women were infertile, it was a common practice for them to give a slave woman to their husband and then have children through the slave woman. Obviously, that raises a huge amount of ethical questions 
which we don't have time to go into this morning. But we, what we do need to see is that in the eyes of the world, or at least 4,000 years ago in the eyes of the world, this was perfectly acceptable, what Abram and Sarai were doing, using Hagar as a, as a surrogate mother. But in the eyes of God, this was not okay. This is really important for us to see. And so I want to point out two reasons from the text of Genesis why we know that this was a sinful decision on the part of Abram and Sarai. First of all, Genesis has already established that the marriage union between one man and one woman is the proper context for having children. In the first two chapters of Genesis, God created Adam, then he created Eve, and he gave her to Adam as his wife. And together, as husband and wife, they were called to be fruitful and multiply. And so right there, in the first two chapters of the Bible, it's clear that a husband and wife are meant to have children together. It is not God's plan for a, for a man to have children through multiple women. I think that as Moses wrote Genesis 16, he intentionally emphasized the fact that what Abram and Sarai were doing here was not in accord with God's plan. Listen again to verse 3. So, after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. That's not the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> Abram's wife, Sarai, should not be giving another woman to her husband as a second wife. Now, secondly, you remember that in Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve fell into sin when they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the language that Moses uses here in chapter 16 intentionally echoes the language that he used back in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, 6 says that Eve took of the fruit and she gave it to her husband and he ate of it. Here in Genesis 16, verses 3 and 4, it says Sarai took Hagar, her servant, she gave her to, to her husband, and he went into her. Moses is presenting this as something like the fall of Abram. He's acting in disobedience, just like Adam did in the Garden of Eden. He's acting in a way that's contrary to the revealed will of God because he thinks that God needs help keeping his promises. It's not that Abram has completely lost his faith. It's not that Abram has quit believing in God's promises altogether. <laughs> but in this moment, he's not exercising his faith. He's really a lot like us, isn't he? <laughs> we have faith in the Lord, but in, in, some, in certain moments, we're not exercising our faith. Abram is not trusting God to keep his promises in his way and in his time. He's not waiting on the Lord. And so Abram is taking things into his own hands by using Hagar in this way. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was one of the great preachers of the 20th century, said in his book on spiritual depression that faith doesn't function automatically like a thermostat. Just think about that. Think about the thermostat in your house. If you set it to turn on the heat when the temperature gets down to, say, 68 degrees, then what happens when it gets that cold in your house? The furnace just turns on automatically. You don't need to go down to the basement and fire up the furnace yourself. The thermostat just tells the furnace to turn on, and it warms up the house. It happens automatically. 
Faith is not like that. I think that I would love it if every time that a challenge came into my life or a test or a trial, if my faith just turned on automatically. But that doesn't happen, does it? <laughs> Lloyd-Jones says, Faith is an, an activity. It is something that needs to be exercised. And so here in Genesis 16, Abram is faced with a, a test of his faith. It looks like God's promises are not working out. The son that has been promised to him hasn't come yet. And his faith is not automatically turning on. He's failing to exercise faith in this situation. Abram must have thought, God's promises to me are, they're wonderful promises. They're great promises. But God just needs a little bit of help here. (laughs) The truth is that God does not need any help to keep his promises. (laughs) The whole Bible shows us that God loves to make promises that seem impossible And then with all the odds stacked against him, he comes through and he does the impossible and he gets all of the glory. I remember, um, this was probably 20 years ago when I was in school here at Bethlehem, uh, hearing John Piper talk about a certain business in his neighborhood. Whenever he went running in his neighborhood, he would run past the the store that always had a Help Wanted sign up in in their window. They almost never had enough employees. They almost always were looking for more help. And on the rare occasions that this business had enough employees, they didn't take down the help wanted sign. Instead, they put, just put up the word no above it so that, it's, so that it read no help wanted. <laughs> and I remember Pastor John saying that whenever he would see that sign up, no help wanted, he would say, yes, that's the gospel. No help wanted. God does not need our help. We need his help. And God loves to help those who trust in him. But Abram thinks that God needs some help. And his lack of trust has led him to make a big mistake, and now he's in quite the predicament. And so in verses 4 through 6, it says that Abram went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. This is really a mess, isn't it? (laughs) It's just a mess. Hagar is pregnant with Abram's child. Now she's looking with contempt on Sarai. Sarai is blaming Abram for this, even though this whole idea was her idea. Abram ought to be protecting Hagar and his child inside of her, but instead he just tells his wife, well, do whatever you want with her. And Sarai is so harsh with Hagar that she just runs away. And that is the end of the first scene in Genesis 16. (laughs) Abram was faced with a problem here. He came up with a solution that ultimately flowed out of unbelief. And now at the end of this scene, it's just a disaster. And now, God is going to show up. And God is going to do something absolutely amazing. And so in verse 7, it says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And so Hagar, remember, is an Egyptian, and she's on her way back home to Egypt. At this point, she's probably traveled several days and she's trying, she's, she's taking her chances. 
her chances, really, trying somehow to make it on this long journey through the wilderness, through the desert, back to her homeland of Egypt. And she's met now by the angel of the Lord. Let me just say a short word about the angel of the Lord. There's a lot of debate among Bible scholars about the identity of the angel of the Lord. Some would say that this is a a very powerful, very high-ranking angel. Others would point out that the Hebrew word angel simply means messenger, and so this could be the Lord himself, maybe even a pre-incarnate manifestation of, of Christ. We don't need to figure out exactly who this is right now, but we can say with certainty that God is speaking to Hagar here. That's what's really important here. Whether this is a manifestation of God himself or whether this is God speaking through an angel, it's clear that in some way God himself is speaking through, that God himself is speaking to Hagar. I would just encourage you, if you want to know more about the angel of the Lord, to just add that to the list of challenging questions to ask Rick Schenk. (laughs) So then, so in verse 8, the angel of the Lord says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, Where have you come from? And where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. Now the angel of the Lord, of course, knows the answer to these questions. He's not pursuing information as though he's ignorant. But what he's doing is he's interacting with Hagar. He's drawing something out of her. He's beginning to work in her heart in this moment. And now in verses 9 through 12, the angel of the Lord is going to tell Hagar three specific things. And this is the turning point in the story. In these next few verses, the angel of the Lord is going to reveal the very character of God. He's going to tell Hagar about the very heart of God himself. And that is what's going to make all the difference for Hagar and for Abram and Sarai. And it's, it's the very heart of God that makes all the difference in the world for you and me. And so first of all, in verse 9, the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now, that's probably not what Hagar wanted to hear in this moment. But the angel of the Lord is about to give her some very good reasons for returning to Sarai and submitting to her. And so secondly, in verse 10, the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Now that is an incredible promise. It's an incredible blessing, in fact. Chapter 17, verse 20, refers to this promise as a blessing. Remember that back in chapter 15, God promised Abram that he would give him innumerable offspring. And now we're seeing that Hagar and her son are going to be included in that promise. That is remarkable because as the story continues in Genesis, we're going to see that God is going to keep all the promises that he gave to Abram. He's going to keep them through Isaac. The covenant people are going to come through Isaac. Isaac is the one who is the child of the promise. Hagar's son is not the child of the promise. Nevertheless, God is still going to bless Hagar's son with innumerable descendants. Just think about that. Abram thought that God needed his help to keep his promises. And so in his unbelief, he acted in a way that is contrary to the will of God, and he decided to have a child through Hagar, the slave woman. 
And God is so gracious, and he is so generous, that he tells Hagar, the slave woman, I'm going to give innumerable descendants to you too. Oh, what a generous God he is. What a gracious God. Just like Paul said in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I mean, you, you just see so much sin here in the beginning of the story, and the grace of God is just abounding over it, giving blessing to, to Hagar and to her, to, to her son. It, it's such a beautiful picture of the gospel, isn't it? The sin of man, whether it's Abram's sin or whether it's our sin, my sin, it creates a mess, and it leads to huge problems. And then God comes in, bringing redemption, bringing beauty out of ashes, bringing blessing out of brokenness. And he comes with grace that abounds to sinful people like Abram and Sarai and Hagar and you and me. And so God is revealing his character to Hagar here in verse 10. This is a gracious God. This is the God who, ble- who brings blessing out of brokenness. And now in verses 11 and 12, we're going to see another aspect of God's character. This is the third thing that the angel of the Lord says to Hagar. Verse 11, the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now, verse 12, just briefly, is bringing out the fact that, that even though Hagar is a, is a slave, her son will not be a slave. In fact, he's going to live the, really live the life of a free-spirited nomad. But I want to focus in on what verse 11 tells us here about Ishmael. If you have the, the ESV, you probably have a footnote at the bottom of your page that says that Ishmael means God hears. That's why Hagar needed to name her son Ishmael. It's because the Lord has listened to, or the Lord has heard, your affliction. And so here she is. She's this slave woman who's being used to, to carry a child. Sarai has dealt so harshly with her that she's decided to run away. And now she's by a spring of water in the wilderness trying somehow to get home to Egypt. And the Lord has listened to her affliction. And I want you to notice that the Lord is the one who took the initiative here. The text does not tell us that Hagar cried out to the Lord, that Hagar prayed to God for help. It doesn't say that. Rather, the Lord saw her. He heard her groaning. And he comes to her and says, Hagar, where have you come from? Where are you going? He's taking the initiative to reach out to Hagar here in her affliction. This is the God who not only brings blessing out of brokenness, this is also the God who hears the cry of the afflicted and saves them. This is a tender-hearted God who's filled with compassion and mercy. And Hagar reflects on God's compassion in verses 13 and 14. It says, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy, 
which means the well of the living one who sees me. It lies between Kadesh and Barad. And so the Lord heard Hagar in her affliction. The Lord saw her in her distress. As Gordon Wenham writes in his commentary on Genesis, in Scripture, when God sees, he cares. When God sees, he cares. God is showing us his heart here in Genesis 16. He cares for Hagar in her affliction. And you see this throughout the entire Bible. God hears his people. He sees us. He cares for us in our affliction. And in God's compassion, he acts. He acts to deliver his people. And as the story of, Gen- as the, story of the Bible unfolds, you see God acting to deliver his people and, and to redeem them from even greater afflictions than this one. In verse 11, it says, The Lord has listened to your affliction. And and that phrase uses two specific words. The word for listen or hear, which is a very common word in the Old Testament. And it's also using the word affliction, which which is a more unusual word. And these two words, listen or hear and affliction, these words show up together four other times in the Old Testament. And what's really interesting is that all four of those times, it's always talking about how the Lord heard the cry of the Israelites when they were in slavery in Egypt and he delivered them from their affliction. Let me just give you one example of this. In Exodus 3, verses 7 and 8, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. So God saw their affliction. He heard their cry. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land. In Genesis 16, when God heard Hagar and her affliction, he acted by giving her this amazing promise of innumerable descendants. When God heard the Israelites in their affliction, he acted in the Exodus by delivering them from slavery and bringing them to the promised land. And what about us? Well, you and I were once slaves of sin, weren't we? We weren't slaves in Egypt, but we were captive to the power and the guilt of sin. You and I were held captive under the the tyrannical power of the sin that we loved. And we were spiritually dead. We were separated from the God who, who made us for himself, and we are on our way to eternal punishment. This is the affliction that we brought upon ourselves by turning away from God, by chasing after idols, by pursuing our own glory instead of God's glory. In other words, we were suffering under the self-inflicted affliction of our own sin. And God saw us. He heard us groaning under the weight of our sin. And he knew that we were absolutely powerless to break the power of the chains of sin that held us captive. And God came to deliver us. He came into the world as a man and he bore the curse of our sin on the cross. He died and he rose to set us free from the tyranny of our sin. The Son of God actually entered into our suffering and he carried our sorrows and he gave his very life to rescue us from sin and death. 
Just like he did with, God, with Hagar, God is the one who took the initiative in our lives to deliver us from affliction. And just think about that. God did not wait for us to turn to him first, did he? God didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up, to make ourselves righteous. He didn't wait until we had our lives in order so we could say, oh God, look how good I am now. No, no, no. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we still loved the sin that held us captive, Christ died for us. That's how gracious he is. This is a merciful God. Oh, what a tender-hearted God he is. It's overflowing with compassion. This is the God who brings blessing out of brokenness by being broken in our place. If you don't know this merciful and compassionate God this morning, would you, would you turn to him today? Would you embrace his promises of life and, and freedom and eternal joy? Maybe you're here this morning and you've never even realized that you're enslaved to sin. Or maybe you do know that you are a slave to sin and you're ashamed of it. No matter where you're at this morning, you are not beyond the reach of the God who hears the cry of the afflicted. Just like Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. I want to I plead with you this morning, if, you, if you've never done so, to turn away from whatever sin, whatever idols are holding you captive, and to turn to Christ and trust in Christ as the one who died and rose on your behalf. And then you will belong to this merciful God forever. And so back in Genesis 16, God is showing mercy here to Hagar. And I, wa I want to point out the fact that he's showing mercy to this slave woman who happens to be an Egyptian. Now I want you to remember that Moses wrote the book of Genesis and he wrote it so that the people of Israel could learn about their God after he had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Just think about that. If you're an Israelite and you've just been delivered from Egypt through the Exodus and you're hearing this story for the very first time, this story about God showing mercy to, to Hagar, who do you think would be the last person that God would show mercy to? Probably an Egyptian. <laughs> I mean, after all, the Egyptians were the great enemies of God's people. They were the people who have, who have been holding you and your Fathers and your fathers' fathers and your, your, descend, your ancestors, the, the Egyptians are the ones who have been holding your people in slavery for hundreds of years. And so here in Genesis 16, God is doing this amazingly surprising thing by showing mercy to an Egyptian, one of the enemies. I wonder how many Israelites, when they first heard this story, as Moses shared it with them, I wonder how many thought, what was God thinking? <laughs> Why would God reach out to an Egyptian woman and have mercy on her? But the reality is that this is always how God works, isn't it? God is always showing mercy to the most unlikely people, isn't he? I mean, the people that we might look at and say, well, they sure don't deserve God's mercy. This is exactly what Jesus did when he came into the world, isn't it? Just think, just to give you one example, remember 
uh, his conversation with the woman at the well in John chapter 4? <laughs> when Jesus' disciples returned from their errand that he had sent them on, and they saw Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman, they must have thought to themselves, what is Jesus thinking? Why is Jesus reaching out to this Samaritan woman? They're the enemies of, of, of our people. Why is Jesus having mercy on her? And yet, here's the Son of God graciously speaking to this Samaritan woman. This woman who has had five husbands, and the one she's living with at the moment is not her husband. And he's telling her the good news that he's come to be the Savior of the world. And you find stories like this all over the Gospels because Jesus is the merciful and compassionate Son of God who loves to save sinners. The Son of God who came to save people from every nation. The, the Savior who came to redeem even the most unlikely people. Really, like people like you and me, Bethlehem, right? <laughs> I mean, we don't deserve his mercy one bit. And yet, here we are, God's covenant people, worshiping our God together. We've been redeemed from slavery to sin. We're on our way to glory because God had mercy even on us. <laughs> Maybe you know someone who just seems like the most unlikely person to experience God's mercy. Maybe it's even your brother or sister. Or maybe it's your son or daughter who's been wandering from God for years. Maybe it's a neighbor or a coworker who's living an, an obviously non-Christian lifestyle. Would you pray, or if you have been, would you keep on praying that God would have mercy on that person in your life? <laughs> and would you show compassion to them just like God did to Hagar and to the Samaritan woman and to you and me? Would you tell them about the God who brings blessing out of brokenness? And so Genesis 16 began with Abram acting in unbelief, which led to a disaster. And now God has intervened. He has revealed his very heart to Hagar in the midst of her affliction. And now in the third and final scene of this story, Hagar is back with Abram and Sarai, and God's promises to her are beginning to come to fruition. Look at verses 15 and 16. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. God is keeping his word to Hagar, isn't he? God's promises to her are actually coming true. God promised in verse 11 that her baby inside of her would be a son, and sure enough, this baby is a boy. And his name, as God said, is Ishmael. Now, that's not a small thing. Think about that. In verse 11, God told Hagar, you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And verse 15 says that Abram called the name of this boy Ishmael. That means that when Hagar returned to Abram and Sarai, she told them, the angel of the Lord appeared to me in the wilderness. And here's what he said. And this child that I'm carrying is going to be a boy and we're supposed to call him Ishmael because the Lord heard me in my affliction. Abram could have very easily said, you've got to be kidding me, Hagar. <laughs> you, you run away and now you come back and you tell me this crazy story that the angels of the Lord appeared to you in the wilderness and spoke to you. 
But Abram didn't say that. That's not what happened. Instead, Abram actually believed Hagar. And he said, oh, God told you that his name should be Ishmael? Well, then I guess his name will be Ishmael. That is a miracle. That is God working in Abram's heart to actually believe Hagar and to believe the, the, the word that he had spoken to Hagar. In other words, God is already working to keep the promises that he made to the Egyptian slave woman. As we've been walking through Genesis over the last few months, we've seen again and again that God always keeps his promises. God is always true to his word. And that means not just that Abram and Sarai and Hagar can trust him. It means that you and I can trust him. It means that we can actually bank our lives on the promises of God. Not only does God keep his promises, but we've seen his heart this morning. He is a gracious and generous God, the God who brings blessing out of brokenness. He is the God whose heart is tender toward the afflicted, the God who abounds with mercy and compassion for even the most unlikely people. And so if this is who he is, if this is his very character, then can we trust in this God? Can we trust him when our faith is being put to the test? Can we trust him even when we can't see how his promises are going to come true? Can we trust him even as we wait for him and we just seem to be waiting and waiting and waiting on him? Can we trust him even when we think that he seems to need us to help him out? We can trust him. This is an absolutely trustworthy God. You know, as we live the Christian life, we find ourselves again and again at a fork in the road, just like Abram did in Genesis 16. And one path that we could take is the path of unbelief. It's the path where we decide, you know, God's promises are great, but they're just too good to be true. I just, I just really can't believe it's going to happen. And so instead, we trust ourselves, we trust what our eyes can see. And when we do that, when we take that path, like Abram did here, it always leads to disobedience. And the other path that we can take at this fork is the path of faith, where we trust God's promises, even when we can't see how they're, they're going to work out, even when it seems like the fog that's in front of us on this path is so thick that we can only see one step ahead. But our shepherd is there with us, and he's lighting the way, and he's leading us one step at a time. We walk by faith, not by sight. And when our sight tells us, you can't really trust God. He really needs you to help him out. Our faith tells us, God is going to keep his word. He is the God who acts for those who wait for him. And so as we wait upon the Lord in faith, we need to, to remember and we need to remind one another of the character of our God. Our God is gracious. He is tender-hearted. He hears us when we cry to him in our affliction. He loves us enough that he gave his son to set us free from sin and death. And so let's trust the Lord. Let's wait for him with eager expectation, like a watchman waiting for the morning. And let's put our hope in his word. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for who you are. Oh, what a magnificent thing it is that you are not only all-powerful, that you not only see all things, 
but that you care for us, that your heart is filled with tender mercy. And so, Lord, as we face the trials and the tests of our faith that come upon us, Lord, as we we face afflictions and, and sufferings, help us to cling to you in faith. Lord, help us to remind one another of who you are. Lord, help us to to, to speak your word into one another's lives, to remind one another of the gracious promises that you've given to us. Help us to remind one another of your heart, Lord, so that we would be encouraged to continue walking by faith and to take hold of your promises. And may that faith lead us to walk with you, Lord, in obedience. And so we're grateful for your love for us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.